Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, hi. Welcome to a Monday. I don't know how to pronounce. What's the, the spice called? Turmeric or turmeric? I, I seem to cook with it a lot because those are the kinds of recipes I like. And the next day, I, I noticed, I noticed on the bus coming in today that my my fingernails are stained. <laughs> That's, oh, come on, come on. All right. So they finally get me a new mic that works, only it's incapable of, well, you know, whatever. Hi, it's Monday. As a matter of fact, it's uh, July. Jesus, July 1. And uh, beautiful weekend, huh? Sorry, I'm stepping in a little slow here because, you know, Mondays and, and Donald Trump. I had a great weekend except for him. Really did. It was so beautiful. Um, he, uh, you would think I'd be able to handle my uh, embarrassment <laughs> and fear um, about the destruction he causes. Um, I just can't get over the pictures. The palsy walsying with the worst of the worst while our allies you know avoid him and he them um and then what is with it with Ivanka you know we have hardly any uh, confirmed uh heads of agencies uh, now. We have all these acting people who last for a week or two and then there's new acting people and I'm sure we're running out of people in those pipelines. And um, his White House staff is uh, disappearing and uh, replaced uh, by worse and worse and worse people and to the point you do get the impression now that just about the only person that has his ear is his daughter. And how, uh, you know, think of it. She holds no position in our government, really, except being the president's daughter. And to see her uh, in such, I mean, upstaging the Secretary of State, we look like a laughing stock. We really do. And I, um, I've read that, that it, the foreign press saying that foreign governments now really um, don't know who they're supposed to talk to in, this, in our government. Um, that it is clear that the usual traditional uh, people one would talk to a foreign minister of some sort, the secretary of state, a diplomat, that those people are not the people to talk to. And it's quite clear that if you want to get somewhere with this administration, you have to curry favor with 
the Trumps that what we have now is essentially a a monarchy of some sort where there's a king and his princess and everybody else it's really something here one uh, diplomat from India said uh, that Ivanka Trump is like a half-wit Saudi prince of which there are you know millions uh, millions of little half-wit Saudi princesses princes and um, And here's what he he's not named, but he told uh, the editor-in-chief of the Hindustan Times, uh, we regard Ivanka Trump the way we do any half-wit Saudi prince. It's in our national interest to flatter them. Unbelievable. So I have, you know, anything I have to say, you probably heard um, others with more uh, more credibility than I. I'm no uh, <coughs> geopolitical pundit. I'm just a human being with two brain cells that actually function. Um even the Wall Street Journal that regularly aids and abets this uh, administration um, noted uh, with some concern that uh, Trump seems most comfortable with the very people that every other head of state avoids, be it Kim Jong-un, be it... Uh, the Saudi prince, <coughs> both of these guys, murderers. Um, I have, where is it? Here. Trump gave a rare endorsement to Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was shunned by most leaders at the Group of 20 summit. Over breakfast on Saturday, Mr. Trump called the crown prince a friend of mine and said he's done a spectacular job. This is the murderous, murderous, and I'm not just talking about Khashoggi. Our CIA said, did it not? that it concluded that the prince personally ordered the killing of that journalist. And Trump, of course, disregards his own intelligence. <coughs> Kim Jong-un he tells him it's an honor to step into his hellscape of a country. And he announces that they've 
gotten their negotiators are going to start back up again. Boy, you sure wouldn't want to be negotiating for Kim because um, it is suspected that the last chief negotiator, the last go-around, um, is dead. He certainly hasn't been seen. He somehow disappeared shortly after the mucked-up uh, summit in Hanoi. Was it Hanoi? I can't remember. Who the hell can keep up with this crap? And then Trump has asked, um, I guess, Putin. <laughs> Boy, Putin. The president making jokes with Putin, the guy who's responsible for putting him in office, in all likelihood, the guy who interfered in our democracy and our president in a public stage laughs about it, mocks it. Don't meddle in our elections. It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. And then laughing with him about dealing with journalists. <laughs> yeah, and their fake news. Well, we know how Putin deals with journalists. He kills them. And then Putin said something about uh, liberal democracy having seen its day. And obviously the triumph of authoritarian government is what he is heralding. And frankly, we are seeing at an alarming clip. Um, and Trump was asked about that. And this might have been the more the most cringe-inducing uh, moment to my mind. Even beats Trump being honored to be in a country that no other respectable head of state would deign to step foot in. And he was asked about Putin saying that it's pretty much the end times for liberal democracy. And Trump's response was something about, yeah, well, you know, he probably could see, can see what's happening in Los Angeles. He can see what's happening in San Francisco. And it shows that this idiot, who is our president, doesn't understand what Putin was saying. He wasn't talking about liberals in the American West. He was talking about what, supposedly, the United States has been the leader of, the very idea of, Western liberalism, it's, it's like, that's Europe, 
that's us, that's supposedly used to be Canada. It's a form of government. He doesn't even know that. He doesn't understand that he, supposedly the leader of the free world, he doesn't understand that that's the leader of countries that subscribe to a form of what is under the heading of Western liberalism. So when asked about it, he thinks they're talking about San Francisco. And I mean, it's just his stupidity, his lack of just basic knowledge is, you would think I wouldn't even react anymore, but there's something about an entire weekend of it. I think Mondays might all, are they always like this? Yeah, I come in and I'm like uh, freaked. And I, I haven't said anything about this, but I've been watching in dismay uh, the British who are uh, trying very hard to uh, nudge us aside as a country that's clearly in decline. And uh, even with our example, with the election of Donald Trump, it appears that the Brits are about to have a, a Trump of their own. Uh, by the end of this month, there will be a new prime minister and unless something startling happens, it is going to be the British clown called Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, who strangely has some of the same physical characteristics of Trump. He's, he's a big guy. He's sort of orange. Um, he's vulgar. He's a train wreck. His personal life is messy. A neighbor just called the cops uh, last week, I believe, upon hearing him and his girlfriend screaming and fighting at uh, and, you know, breaking crockery. He, uh, he was a journalist himself, Boris Johnson, and he, uh, well, was drummed out of the uh, journalism profession. Guess why? Because he fabricated stuff. He lied. He, he didn't get that a journalist is not supposed to literally make things up. And he still lies. So he's just, he's exactly like, uh, like Trump. He might have a few more brain cells, but he is a... Gaff prone. He's a racist. Um, he has called Africans pickaninnies, and then he doesn't. He never apologizes for anything. You remember when he said that Obama was against Brexit? I I believe because he had an ancestral dislike of British colonialism because his father was a Kenyan. Um, uh, 
unless something miraculous happens, that's the next prime minister. Oh, and I this this came across my uh, my view per view, and uh, this is a quote by Tucker Carlson about uh, Trump going to North Korea and um, making excuses for the murderous uh, regime of Kim Jong-un. And here is what Tucker Carlson said with a totally straight face to the Fox News audience. You've got to be honest about what it means to lead a country. It means killing people. Boy, that's a far cry from Walter Cronkite, isn't it? Come on, you've got to be honest about what it means to lead a country. It, it means killing people. A lot of countries he went on committed atrocities including our allies. Silly, it's stupid to just point out that Kim Jong-un is so mean. The extraordinary ability of people to accommodate when they need to for whatever reason, when they need to. God. All right, we need something. Bring in the puppies. I got to tell you, we need something nice. Puppies. This was in the Wall Street Journal sometime this, I don't know, since last I saw you, and I didn't know this. But, you know, cats and dogs aren't supposed to get along, which is bull. Um, but cheetahs, which is a cat, a large cat to be sure, uh, cheetahs in the uh, feline kingdom um, our, are apparently the, the most sort of skittish, fearful, uncomfortable, they have social anxiety. They're less self-possessed than, I guess, leopards. Uh, they they just have that, or, or you know what? They don't like being in a zoo, and this has to do with uh, the the incarcerated cheetahs, and it's been known for some time that if you get a little baby cheetah and you get a little puppy. And with about, so they'll live about the same uh, amount of time. They will, you pick a puppy that's going to grow to be about the same size. You put these two beautiful little critters together when they're babies. And they bond. And the puppies bring a kind of joyousness 
and uh, confidence to the cheetah's lives. And so I didn't know this, but it turns out that at the San Diego Zoo, at the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, they have been matching cheetahs and puppies since the, since the 1980s. I mean, with incredible effect, so that they live and grow old together. Um, it says here that the, the dogs can, can show cheetahs what is and isn't a threat. In other words, the dog knows that, oh, that's not anything you have to be worried about. And the cheetah seeing the sort of easygoingness of its puppy pal also then has a better, a better time of it in his or her incarcerated state. Um, I mean, there are, there's, a, I guess, a pair at the Dallas Zoo, uh, a cheetah and a black lab that have been together since they were both six, years, six weeks old. And uh, it's now six years, and they are inseparable. So... I didn't know that, but there's these pictures <laughs> of, you know, the two, the puppies and the little kit uh, together rolling around, but then the full-grown, glorious cheetah and, and you know, a happy-go-lucky Labrador with, the, you know, a squeaky toy in its mouth and tail wagging, and the cat intrigued, interested, Playful, trusting. More stories like that. More stories like that. Please. Uh, this one I, I actually couldn't believe for um, a, a, a long time. Uh, I, this can't be true. It can't be true. You know all the videos now that we're seeing about what happens to a black person, uh, usually black men, um, when they are just simply living. And so it's resulted in, you know, we know we've known before of driving while black, but now, you know, walking while black, uh, you know, who knows, sitting on a bench while black. Uh, selling lemonade while black, uh, going home, trying to get into your own house while black. Um, and now, you know, those of us who aren't black have seen so much damning evidence of this reality of being black in a racist nation. Um, and I don't know if you saw the latest video. It is of, it took place in a town called Freeport, Illinois. 
And this is a guy, his name is Shaquille Dukes. He uh, was in the hospital because he has double pneumonia, and he also is an asthmatic. And if you're an asthmatic and you get pneumonia, that is potentially, you know, very, very serious stuff. So he was hooked up to a, um, you know, IV thingamajig. And um, apparently his doctor told him, you know, listen, you, you got to keep moving. Uh, why don't you just take, you know, walk around the hospital? Now, my suspicion is, is the doctor meant walk around the corridors of the hospital. But Shaquille Duke thought he meant go outside and walk around the hospital, which is okay, too, you know, get some fresh air. So he had two visitors with him, and the three of them, all black men, uh, went out of the hospital. Shaquille hooked up, had the IV, um, and his the bag hanging from the pole had on his um, his lovely hospital gown, and they went walking in the front of the hospital outdoors. And at some point, when they were trying to go back in, a security guard, I hope I'm getting these facts right, uh, a security guard at the hospital stopped him and apparently accused him of something. The extraordinary thing is I believe the accusation was that he was stealing the IV apparatus. Words were exchanged. The police were called. And now you've got a security guard and at least two cops. And let's just put it this way. Before this is over, the cops have pulled the IV out of this hospitalized man's arm and have um, handcuffed him and thrown him in the back of their police car where and took his inhaler away and he began having uh, he had a, like a seizure or an asthma, asthma attack he blacked out who knows what they ran him into the ER and their whole thing was they thought he was what trying to steal an IV pole while dressed in a hospital gown? I, I mean, I... They could have killed him. They removed the, the, the meds that he was getting. They handcuffed him. They put him under stress that resulted in him having an attack. They could have, cops know all different ways to kill people because their racism is so just mind-bogglingly front and center. I, 
you know, you look at these videos and you're you're incredulous. I mean, you think it's a joke. You think, is this somebody, is, they're setting me up here, right? This is like a skit. This is just, you know. <laughs> no. No. White cops getting all macho and tough with a black man in a hospital gown hooked up to an IV. You know, I often find myself driving by um, Shadyside Hospital, and it is not unusual to see people outside in front of Shadyside Hospital in hospital gowns, and amazingly, often outside in hospital gowns, hooked up and smoking a cigarette. <laughs> And I think, but, you know, whatever. So, you, yeah, you see that. I can't imagine any of them have been stopped for uh, what? I, it's just, guys. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Okay. Something uh, something interesting that um, David D'Angelo of Two Political Junkies that's a that's a blog and I recommend it Two Political Junkies um, sent me he wrote uh, a piece over the weekend uh, and it's about how women um, in the 1800s and in the early 1900s, how um, they tried to control their reproductive health. Um, there were advertisements in newspapers that women understood what was being sold. They were pills that would cause abortion. Who knows how many of these things worked, how dangerous they were, but they clearly were. And newspapers regularly carried these ads. Um, here's, here's one from 1841. 1841, it's from the, a New York newspaper. The headline is Female Monthly Pills. And the text, I mean, if we were to read the text, wouldn't know what the hell they're talking about. But women knew. And part of the text is, These pills are acknowledged by the physicians of the United States as the very best medicine that ladies laboring under a suppression of their natural illness can take. And they very seldom fail to relieve when taken according to directions. Suppression of their natural illness means the, the fact that the women were not menstruating. In other words, menstruation was <laughs> their natural illness. Uh, women are naturally ill once a month. 
Um, and what stops a period? Pregnancy. And so these pills were for women who were laboring under a suppression of their natural illness, they're pregnant. Here's another one, another ad. This is for uh, Madame Costello. Suppression, irregularity, obstruction, etc., by whatever case produced can be removed by Madame C in a very short time. And then later in the ad, it's... It says, those who wish to be treated for obstruction of their monthly period. In other words, those who want to be treated for being pregnant. So whatever they were selling, who knows if they worked, they were selling potions and pills so that a woman could abort uh, a pregnancy. Um And they were sold in papers all over the place. Uh, they were sold as periodic pills, uh, so on and so forth. So David D'Angelo wrote, did all this research, then wondered if in Pittsburgh the newspapers here were advertising this stuff. And mm-hmm, they were. So he finds, uh, he finds this in the Daily Pittsburgh Gazette of August 2nd, 1841. And its headline is sickness, exclamation point, sickness. And I mean, there's so much craziness uh, in these ads. Um, those who have been obtaining these, the medicines formerly sold at 41 and 19th Street, St. Clair Street in Pittsburgh for dyspepsia, liver complaints, pain in the side, breast and back, bilious and all other fevers and all diseases of the nerves, stomachs and bowels. This was to let them know that they were now available at a different store at Mr. Samuel Frew corner of wood and liberty and ostensibly as david writes it's an announcement regarding a certain certain medications that used to be sold over here and now you're going to be able to get them over there at wood and liberty and about a quarter of the way down this announcement is uh telling women that Dr. Leroy's female pills for diseases peculiar to the sex. Um, any woman, David writes, reading this would know exactly what disease peculiar to their sex was and where then they could get these pills. That's in 1841 in a Pittsburgh newspaper. Seventy years later, there he found another ad from the Pittsburgh Press 
uh, August 10th of 1910. Uh, and it said here, Dr. Martell's female pills, 17 years the standard prescribed and recommended for women's ailments, a scientifically prepared remedy of proven worth. The result from their use is quick and permanent. For sale at all drug stores of the May Drug Company, seven stores in Pittsburgh. And on and on. And then there's just flat out a recipe uh, for a potion that is printed in 1912 in the Pittsburgh Press. It's a recipe for a regulator for women. And looking at the recipe, it's clearly a recipe to end a pregnancy. Now, David ends this way. I am not a doctor or expert in biochemistry. I have no idea whether any of these remedies actually work or even if they're safe. Given that 19th century America was drenched in snake oil cures for many maladies, known or imagined, it would not be wrong to think that some of these cures are hokum, perhaps even dangerous hokum. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that women in the early 19th century here in Pittsburgh believed, and there was obviously a market for it or people wouldn't be paying to put ads in the paper, uh, Pittsburgh believed that taking these periodic pills would end an unwanted pregnancy and they were willing to take the pills and end those pregnancies. As he says, women have found ways forever, for centuries, legislating that termination of pregnancy is illegal, is not going to change a thing. It'll just make more women die. I thank David for doing all that work and, and, and for thinking to send it to me. Oh, wow, and Milton has just gone and looked up a whole bunch of, he sent me a whole compilation of classified ads from the New York newspapers. Um... and the, the use of euphemism. Sexually transmitted infections are private diseases. Pregnancy is a disease peculiar to females. And abortion uh, or the administration of an abortion agent's was, uh, agency was described as the removal of an obstruction. There were all these people who just made tons of money. Um, a woman named Madame Restell um, 
had all kinds of stuff, monthly pills, preventive powders, surgical abortion, a boarding house she had that could accommodate women who needed a private place to give birth. And then we have here that first trimester abortion itself was not illegal until the late 19th century. But commercially available abortive-fashioned pills and powders uh, were outlawed early in the 1800s because a lot of them were, <laughs> were poison. They were snake oil, and they'd kill women. Sometimes they produced abortion, and sometimes they killed the mother, I suppose. Interesting stuff. Hey, I'm still back on space because I just love this thing that the, um, I've told you this before, that the uh, New York Times does uh, when on, I think once a month, they do this uh, for children, for young people. They put a whole section together of of news and lets kids have their say about things. And I'm remembering how the, um, already forgotten his name, the, the Jeopardy guy, the guy who was winning left, right, and center, said he got so much information stuffed in his head. And he said he did it by reading, chil going to the children's section in the library because everything is presented there in a very accessible way. I mean, it's fact, but it's accessible. There's pictures, visuals, things that help you, you know, uh, commit it to, to memory. And so here's just a few other little factoids that I got reading, reading this, which I found interesting. Do you know why the moon looks bigger when it's low in the sky, you know, when you see a moon like rising uh, and, and it just looks huge. There's a story I know in our family that we still laugh at. Um, I don't know if Susan and I argue about who it was, but I think it was Susan. Um, we were driving somewhere as a family and this extraordinary moon was coming up and Susan misidentified it she thought it was a gas station she thought it was a shell sign if you remember shell gas stations with the big yellow and the fact that Susan looked at the moon and saw a shell sign was something that we didn't let her forget for years, for decades. But why? Why does the moon look that large? And then as it ascends, appears to get smaller and smaller. It can't be true that it's all of a sudden large and getting smaller. So what is going on? Excuse me. So what, what is going on? I, I know some of you smarty pants know. 
Anybody know what to do with a flaxen mic? Son of a bitch. Here. Ah, damn it. All right. This has to get fixed. This is driving me nuts. Okay. Um, here's what it says, and I have to admit that this is very uh, disappointing. <laughs> it says here, it's just an optical illusion. And they're not really quite sure of how to explain it, but nobody's quite sure, it says, why this optical illusion happens. But one theory is that the moon simply looks bigger when it's close to the horizon because your brain is comparing it with the uh, surroundings, with, the, with like puny earth objects like trees or buildings in, in front of it. Um, so I was surprised. I thought it might have something to do with atmospherics or something. Um, so that, I'm just saying, passing it on. And then um, we were talking before about that iconic photo of the footprint on the moon left by, uh, we always assume, Neil Armstrong. It wasn't his. Uh, it was Buzz Aldrin who mostly did the camera work, and he took a photo of his. All of the footprints on the moon um, are still there even though the moon's surface is like this very, very fine granular like sand, but even finer, like powder almost, I believe Armstrong said. Um, those impressions have never, they're there, that's it. And have you ever wondered how that pie wouldn't last two seconds here? And it's because just in case you're as stupid as me, it's because there is no wind. There is no, uh, let me see exactly what they say. There's no wind, there's no rain, there is no what we would call weather. on the moon. What? See now, to me that begs a million questions. What do you mean there's no weather on the moon? What do you mean? So there's no, yeah, that's just, I'm just telling you, and this is classic, so the footprints are there saying we was here, but they're not the only thing. Uh, we have left all kinds of stuff on the moon. Uh, you recall some uh, some guys up there hitting golf balls. All those golf balls are still out there somewhere. But, you know, other things that we have left on the moon, nail clippers, a javelin, wet wipes, and get this, poop bags. Yeah, humans were here. Look, look what we left. Look what we left. Shit. That's what we left. 
and then the remains of all the rovers and uh, equipment that we didn't have any use for anymore. So you just leave it there. So wherever we go, we pollute. <laughs> Junk. And the other thing I found uh, fascinating is along with there being no rain, no wind, no weather, there's really no sound. There is a silence on the moon that would probably freak uh, most people out. And that's true also with most of space because there are no air molecules to carry sound waves. I mean, you're doing this and you can clap your hands together, but there's... Huh. So anyway, that's what I learned by reading the kids section. I love the kids section. I just love it. And I mean, I'm a little embarrassed to share it because I figure a lot of you um, knew all that stuff. I mean, you know, uh, this this program has um, suffered a lot of like technical issues, but this is mechan. This is like you know, this is a friggin' uh, mechanical thing. I shouldn't have to be dealing with. Okay, I think I think we got it right. Oh. Uh. Oh, more factoids. I just love them. There was a, uh, apparently they've, there was a piece about uh, uh, Ben Franklin's uh, autobiography that he wrote, and um, it was published in 1793. And um, it was published after his death. He died in 1790. Ben Franklin he was the oldest of what we consider the founding fathers. And some felt he was maybe the most revolutionary. He was certainly the most creative. And, you know, he served the, the country in so many ways. And he was pretty up in years, you know, to travel across the ocean to be our uh, our ambassador in France, in, uh, in England. So, let me see what they have here. Um, he starts it by I just love this guy. He says, Having emerged from the poverty and obscurity in which I was born to a state of affluence and some degree of reputation in the world, 
he then went on to think that maybe some aspects of his life were therefore fit to be imitated. Since he started in obscurity and poverty and rose to have a reputation in the world. The American Dream. Um, and they point out that it was Franklin and Jefferson that were the two uh, founding fathers who just were ardent in their belief that there was not going to be able to be a sustained democracy if there were not a literate and educated citizenry. And I would argue we're sure proving that point. Um, you know, whenever anything like got in his way in some way, he invented something to get around it. I mean, the bifocals, uh, he did the first bifocals and he did it um, because when he was ambassador in, in Paris, he, he, he had his glasses on um, and his glasses allowed him, he had two sets of glasses. He had glasses that let him, helped him see things far away. He had glasses that helped him read and... <laughs> And he found that if he wanted to see his food, so he's wearing these glasses, but then he'd look up to talk to the person across the table. He couldn't even see who was there. And if he put those glasses on, he couldn't see. And so he instructed a glassmaker to uh, cut apart the lenses and and uh, and glue one um, into a you know into each other into a single fr whatever he just said. I mean, why shouldn't we have that? It would seem that yeah, these should be down here, and then those bifocals. You know, most people they suffer through these these problems that life puts in front of us. He always wanted to solve them. And he said, I understand French better by the help of my spectacles. I mean, think of all this stuff this guy did. Electrical condu conduction. The stove, the Franklin stove. I didn't even know this one. They say the glass harmonica. But in addition to that, I mean, he created the postal system. He, he figured out how to create a, a postal service. He, he established a, a something so wondrously American, the lending library. Again, because you need a literate citizenry, but most citizens were not you know, necessarily had libraries in their homes. So he came up with this idea of we'll have a building with books in it. He did the first fire stations. 
I mean, think of this genius of... He founded a university, founded a hospital. And the other interesting thing is when he wrote his autobiography, he only brought it up to the age of 41. I mean, and it was after 41 that so many of the things that we know him for uh, occurred. So in his autobiography, there is no mention of the the revolution, the confederation, the constitution. Fascinating. Anyway... I do have the autobiography at at home and I this has made me maybe want to take a look at it again. So um god how much time we got here I don't know. A quickie about insects. Ah, nah, we don't have time. I mean, people, well, I just love this. We see insects largely as a nuisance, right? They buzz around, they fly, we want to kill them all the time. We want them eradicated all the time. Well, I just want to share, like, one thing with you. The true, and this is Harvard biologist uh, E.O. Wilson in 1987. The truth is that we need invertebrates. We need these. We need them. They don't need us. If invertebrates were to disappear, I doubt that the human species could live more than a few months. So I just telling you that so you won't get on your high horse. We are so divorced <coughs> from the reality of the natural world and of how piddling we are. What we are is the greatest threat to it. That is what we've become by virtue of our big brains. Bugs have survived forever despite 479 million years. That's their track record way here long before us and they'll be here long after us but this is a this is a piece about how they're struggling now too because of us they're struggling now too nearly a third of all insects are threatened by extinction It's something. And it's all us. 
use of land for agriculture and development, the destruction of rainforests, climate change, pollution, pesticides. Hmm. So I just got to tell you, Without insects, there'll be no birds. Sixty percent of the birds in this world eat insects. Without insects, the world's populations of larger uh, species, uh, not just birds, bats, freshwater fish, would dis- disappear Next time you complain about the bugs, I just want you to step back and have a larger perspective because the bugs are more important than you are. Just saying. A little humility would be in order. All right. Thanks for being there, assuming you were. (laughs) And... I'll see you tomorrow. Susan will be joining us. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.